if you guys want to uh, start heading back, we'll carry on. Quite a subdued crowd today. What's the deal? Everybody just kind of mellow this morning? No coffee. That's, there's no coffee, of course. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? There's no coffee. Yeah, the water. I don't know if the river, I don't know what happened. Flowed, flooded, something. There's, they said, don't use the water. We just got a big sign. Don't, don't drink the water. Don't go in the water. Uh, Christmas season is upon us. Good, bad? Good? Anybody wrestling with it a little bit? Struggling? Having a hard time? No? You guys happy? Fa la la? I like it. Last week we we talked about some of the events, kind of like the prequel, the backstory, some of the things that led up to the advent or the arrival of Jesus. We looked specifically at the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and sort of... uh, you know, Jesus is fully God, fully man, and we looked at the sort of human side of his history and his bloodline, and, and what we saw was that there were some less than savory characters, that some of the people in the history of Jesus were uh, not perfectly righteous and holy in every way, and I think there were a couple lessons maybe that we could uh, glean from that. One is that uh, Jesus welcomes sinners. And if you're here this morning and you have had any sort of uh, sinful behavior in your background, you've got a little bit of a sordid history of your own, uh, his word to you would be welcome. Come on in. He is blessed and honored to call you family. Uh, I think the other thing we learned, and we sang this this morning, and I, I so appreciate that, is that he makes all things new. Jesus redeems Everything. There's nothing and no one that's so far out, so far away, so far gone that he can't draw that into him and redeem it and transform it and make it new in him. Uh, we, are, we are all a new creation in Christ, and so for that we can be thankful. This morning I'd like to continue this uh, process of kind of looking at the history, uh, the things that led up to the birth of Jesus, and uh, so last week we looked at sort of the human side of that, his, his family heritage. This morning I want to look at sort, uh, sort of the, the God side of that, the spiritual side of his history, and look at some of the Old Testament prophecies uh, of the coming of Jesus. Uh, there, there are numerous uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that give us little glimpses, little 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 glimpses, little looks into the future, into the coming of the Savior, into the birth and the life and the death of Jesus. Um, and, and I want to say this, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, and we're going to talk about this. Uh, because, because there are prophecies uh, telling us of some things that are yet to happen, that doesn't mean that everything is set in stone. Uh, it's not. What it does mean is this, that some things are set in stone. That the things that God wants to be set in stone are set in stone. And it's challenging for us. We live in a tension of, of uh, God's kingdom and how it works and some of that. Uh, actually, starting in January, we are going to do a series on spiritual gifts, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how they function in the life of the church. And we're going to spend a few weeks, I think three or four weeks, uh, specifically on the gift of prophecy and how that works in the church today. I've enlisted some help, so we'll have a, a few different voices coming in and sharing with us on that. It should be fun. 
I, I encourage you in that. Um, but let me say this for today. What prophecies do for us is this. If, if you're, like for, in, in the Old Testament, the people that were hearing those uh, you know, for the first time about an event to happen in the future, when you hear it on that side of the prophecy, what they do is they give us hope. They cause you to realize, and anyone who's ever heard a prophetic voice understands that, it, you, you suddenly come to terms with the reality that God is there, God is real, God is alive, and God is in control. And uh, so they give us hope. And I would say this this morning, hope is one of the most powerful forces in the world. It really is. And so when we have hope, uh, there is very little that can, that can really stop us. Uh, when hope is crushed or squelched is when things get to be difficult. Uh, for, for those of us on the backside, so to speak, after the fact, we read these prophecies and then we saw or we know of the advent of Jesus and his life and, and now we read that from this side of the equation, I think what the prophetic voice does is it gives us assurance. We can be confident then that this is true, that this is real, that this is right, uh, that, that Jesus really is the Savior, that He really is the Messiah, he, he, he really is the Son of God, He really did come to redeem His people. Um, the, whole, the whole thing, and, and by the whole thing, I, I mean the, the Scripture, the life of Christ, uh, new create everything that's in him it, it becomes uh, a little bit difficult to deny that at that point i had a conversation with one of my young friends this week and we said that there, there are no true atheists and, and i will stick by that i think people can declare themselves as atheists until everything in their life goes sideways and i've seen too many people who say they don't believe in god all of a sudden calling out to god when things aren't going well and so there really are no true atheists. It gets hard to deny the reality of who Jesus is when we look at these prophetic words that came hundreds of years before Jesus. And you have to ask, how did those people know? What did they see? How did that insight come to them unless God gave it to them? Unless it came from God, where could it have come from? How many prophecies of Jesus are there in the Old Testament uh, great question, not a great answer. Uh, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows exactly how many. And this is why um, there, there are, uh, and I don't know how many there are, but there are multiple, numerous places in the New Testament where it will say, and this was written, or this, this happened to fulfill what was written. And sometimes if you go back and you read the verse that that's applying to, it doesn't necessarily predict anything. Um, and so some of those are actually not prophecies per se. Uh, what, what that means when it says this, this was written to fulfill or this happened to fulfill what was written, it means that this gives meaning, this explains what happened there. So those aren't necessarily all prophecies. So I don't know how many prophecies there are of Jesus coming in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, or, but, but that said, I, I would also say this, that... All Scripture points to Jesus. The entire Bible is the Jesus st story. The whole Old Testament in its entirety is looking towards the advent, the coming of Christ. The Gospels tell the story of His life. The, the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and the other epistles talk about the formation of the early church and Revelation talks about the return of Jesus. The whole Bible is the Jesus story. It's all about Him. It all points to Him. So let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and pray, and then I'm going to look at a few of the uh, prophecies, at least some of them, 
uh, in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of Christ. Father, um, open our hearts to receive from your word this morning. I pray that you would stir us uh, in this season with the Christmas story afresh, uh, that it would have uh, new meaning and new impact and new depth in our lives, that we would be uh, in awe once again of who you are and what you did on our behalf, so that it would not become routine and normal and, and just something we take for granted, that it would be something that we look at and, and just uh, are, are awed and amazed over and over again. Uh, in your name we pray, amen. I believe the first prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament is actually in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Um, after the fall of man in the garden, this is uh, God speaking to, actually, the serpent, to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and hers, Eve's offspring, who is a person, a descendant of Eve, who is a human being, will crush your head. And he's talking again to Satan, to the serpent. And you will strike his heel. So, the first prophecy in the Bible tells us that there will be uh, a battle, a, a contest between a person, a descendant of Eve, who will crush Satan. Um, I, I got to say this. Here, here's the deal. Some, sometimes when we hear Scripture taught, it comes to us in a way and that sort of sounds as though, and, and, and maybe you've thought this or picked up on this, maybe not. I, it seems to me I've, I've heard it this way. It sounds as though Jesus was kind of plan B. That the whole thing fell apart and came unraveled, and so God was desperate. He had to do something, so he became a person. And that was the only thing he could do to, to pull this whole thing out because it was such a mess. Uh, I, I, I would say this that the plan for God to become a person was the plan from the beginning, that all along that was God's intention, that Jesus was plan A. Jesus was never plan B. It was always God's intention to become a person and to redeem his people. It was not an afterthought. Um, the other thing I find remarkable about this particular text is that it comes right in the midst of a judgment on Adam and Eve uh, for their sin. And what we see is out of judgment comes hope. And I would say this, judgment never has the last word. That there's always hope in the heart of God. Uh, and so from the very beginning, I believe, it was God's intent to become a person and to redeem his people. Prophet Micah tells us where this person will be born. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small... Uh, Bethlehem is a, a small little place, small town, though you are small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. From the very beginning, uh, there was one who was originated, but he will come from you, Bethlehem. So again, we're told that this descendant of Eve, this human being that's going to come to earth, will come from Bethlehem. And then the prophet Zechariah says, they will look on me, the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Again, I think uh, the idea that he was pierced here indicates to us that 
This is a person. He's talking about an actual event that takes, is going to take place historically. He's not talking about just something in a spiritual realm. The other thing I find very, very interesting about that particular text is the transition from first person to third person in the same sentence. He says, um, They will look upon me, God speaking, uh, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, God speaking in, uh, of Jesus, as one who mourns for an only child. Uh, so there's the understanding, really, of the Trinity and, and the different dimensions of God, even in this one verse. Isaiah 53 is probably the most uh, developed and profound and amazing, really, uh, detailed prophecy of Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. It begins, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. I don't, I don't believe that's just saying that Jesus was homely. Um, I think that is a specific reference to his crucifixion and that time leading up to that. Uh, I don't know how many of you saw uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ, a few years ago. Very different depiction of the crucifixion than in a lot of sort of cinematic portrayals. Uh, Probably a little more realistic. Not fun to look at. Really, really hard to watch. I, when that, I heard about that movie coming out, and I tend to be emotional sometimes anyway, and I was not sure how I would react. So I wanted to see it, but I didn't want anybody to see me see it. So I actually went to a matinee in another town away from our house in the middle of the week, like Wednesday at noon, and there was four people in the theater, and me sitting in the very back alone watching this because I didn't, I, I was afraid if I just burst out sobbing and crying, if I fall on the ground, I'm not sure what's going to happen to me here. So I don't want to, I don't want to be around when I see this. And uh, I didn't, but it was overwhelming. And the reality that uh, Jesus endured what he endured on my behalf became real to me in a way that maybe it hadn't prior. So I was appreciative for the efforts there. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah continues, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, and we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Isaiah communicates to us the reality that our sin will be bore by Jesus, that this one that will come will take the weight of sin upon himself, that he will be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. So again, prophetically, Isaiah sees into the future and sees this One that will come and take upon Himself not only the sin, but the sickness of mankind on our behalf. He continues, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet He did not open His mouth. And We see at the trial of Jesus where he refuses to defend himself. He just takes the accusations that are hurled at him and allows them to speak those things upon him. And then in uh, verse 9, one of the more uh, interesting details that were told prophetically, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Uh, And we know that Jesus was crucified as a criminal, and as a criminal... Uh, he would have been just thrown into a mass grave. That, that's what, criminal, what was done with criminals. There was just a big, huge pit at the side of town. 
kind of like the trash dump, and they would be thrown in there. That was where he would have gone, except that Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy sympathizer, a follower of Christ, intervened and said, no, I have a tomb that I purchased for my family, and I will allow you to lay him there. So instead of a grave with the wicked, he was put into a grave uh, held by the rich. And Isaiah uh, sees this in his uh, spirit. I don't know how he saw it. I, I would love... Uh, to understand the prophetic mind a little more. Um, But I think, again, if you were... The people listening to Isaiah prophesy initially, there would have been hope in your heart for what was yet to come. And for us on this side of the, the equation, I think we just have to say, wow. I mean, I don't know what else to say at that point. Uh, Wow. The story that we are celebrating at Christmas time is not a fairy tale. Uh, it's true. It's true. And it's not only true, but it's part of God's master plan from the very beginning that God would become a person to redeem His people. That was God's intention. That the Savior of the world would be born as a baby and that He would become also, as Isaiah tells us, the wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You see, it really happened. Somebody didn't make this stuff up. And, and the question, I mean, I, you know, I've read that. You know, well, it's just a, it was a, you know, people made it up. Who, let me ask you, who would make this up? Um, if, if you are going to make up a story about the Savior of the world, I, I, I would say this isn't it. This isn't the story of the Savior of the world. This is not how the human mind thinks about kings and rulers and saviors and God. We don't think of him in this way. This really is foolishness except for the fact that it's true. And I think we have to consider that for a minute. Look, if it's true, and if we believe it, you have to ask yourself the question then, you know, how should we then live? Uh, what, 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 is, what is a reasonable life for me to choose if this is really true? How do I organize my life? Is, is it worth giving up everything in my life, my, my thoughts, my hopes, my dreams, what I want to follow after him? Is it worth it all? You've got to ask that question. I would just encourage you. If, and I know most of you guys, but if you haven't, made, if you haven't thought about that, uh, consider it. I would encourage you to... to to read this and consider it. And ask yourself, is, is it worth giving up my life to follow after Him? Is it worth yielding what I want in my life to follow after Him? I, I would suggest there is no other reasonable choice to make than that. Prophecies not only give us, they, they, they tell us it's true, but they also give us some insight into the meaning of the story. Genesis 3, uh, you know, the idea that the, 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 the Redeemer, this one who will come, will crush uh, the head of the serpent. I mean, from the very beginning, I think we get the idea there's an enemy. We have an enemy. Uh, there, there is a battle that takes place. That enemy will ultimately be defeated, but that, that doesn't negate the fact that there's a struggle along the way. Um, the battle has to be fought. There's a process that leads up to the redemption of the world. 
Ultimately, he's defeated. And after Satan is defeated, then there will be peace. That's the, that's the ultimate outcome is peace. Um, but let me ask, when we think about war, what do we think about? You think about uh, the desire for peace. And anytime there's any war, that's always a conflict, right? Give peace a chance. Let's try peace. We want peace, not war. You know, all of that stuff. When you think of a war that's going to lead to peace, what do we think of? We think of armies, we think of tanks, we think of guns, we think of missiles, um, we, we think of power, uh, bigger guns, more power, we can, we can kill our enemy better, and then there'll be peace, right? Isn't that how we, we think about this? That's the way people have thought about peace for thousands of years. If, if, we, can, if we can kill enough bad guys, then there will be peace. We win because now we rule, right? That's how we think about it. And I think that's the concept a lot of people have of God. If God comes in and destroys all the bad guys, then we win and we rule. But that's not the way God works, is it? That's not the way God came the first time, and that's not the way God will come again. Um, Can I suggest to you something this morning without treading on too much political ground? That way of arriving at peace has never worked, never will work, it can't work. All that can really do is bring about a temporary ceasefire. If you kill your enemy, what you in fact have just done is recruited his friends and his family and his kids and his grandkids and they'll come back in another form and start shooting back. Um, It's a vicious cycle and it never ends. And any peace obtained by warfare is a peace that is always threatened by warfare. Every empire that's ever come into power by the sword has also fallen by the sword. Somebody said that once. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. It can't bring about peace. That's why history is an unbroken cycle of violence that goes on and on. And we hear things, this time we'll win. This is the mother of what wars. This is the war that will end all wars, is the most ridiculous statement ever made. There is no war that will end all wars. Only thing war will do is lead to another war. Real peace is not a ceasefire. Real peace is so much more than that. Real, real peace is not the absence of conflict. We've talked about it before, but it's such an important concept, the biblical concept of Peace is shalom, and it's holistic. It covers every dimension of life. And it can never be obtained by violence. Violence cannot bring about shalom because if it's obtained by violence, it will always be threatened by violence, and it won't be shalom. I think there's one more little detail of that whole process that maybe we forget sometimes or we lose sight of or maybe we just don't get it at all, and that is that um, if God killed all the bad guys, we'd all be dead. See, we, 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 we fancy ourselves the good guys. Wh- and why do we fancy ourselves as the good guys? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we can always find somebody worse, right? There's always somebody worse. But can I say this, that The comparison to all those people doesn't mean anything. 
The only comparison that means anything is the comparison to the nature and the character and the life of Jesus Christ. You can compare yourself to the other bad guys all day long, and it just doesn't matter. But I think we're very fortunate. We can all say amen, hallelujah, praise you, Jesus, because that's not the way he works. He has a different system than that. And that really is the radical difference of the Christmas story. That really is the radical difference of the Christmas story, is that God doesn't work that way. Here's the challenge. This is, see if you identify. I think this is the challenge for us today. We hear the Christmas story every year. We hear it over and over and time and time again. And there are a million little stories of the Christmas story. And there are movies that we watch about the Christmas story. And there are little children's books we read about the Christmas story. And, and it's, it's all very familiar. And it becomes very normal. And in some ways, it's presented to us as being kind of cute. Right? Anybody have those little figurines on their mantle place? Um, if you do, I'm sorry. Um, can, I, can I say there was nothing cute about it? Can I say there was nothing cute about it? Can I say there was nothing normal about this story? Can I be honest? This is one of the craziest, oddest, most bizarre stories ever told. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the craziest story ever told. All right? Can I say nothing happened the way it was supposed to happen? I mean, I think in God's mind it did, but in, in human thinking, nothing that went down the way it was supposed to go down. Um, when God, God, when God defeats evil and establishes peace, he doesn't do it with armies and tanks and guns. He does it by being born as a baby and ultimately by dying at the hands of his enemies, the bad guys who are us. He becomes one of us. He doesn't make himself big and powerful, he makes himself small and vulnerable. He's a baby. He's completely the most dependent person there is. Um, That is not the pinnacle of world domination. That's not what power looks like. Jesus wasn't born. I I think sometimes I get the the whole royals, you know, the royal family, and and what's her name? Who's the princess? What's her name? Huh? Kate, Kate, the baby. She has a baby. It's like huge news. The baby, ba- you know, the royal baby. Uh, everybody, oh, and here's the thing. Jesus wasn't born into a royal family. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a barn, and they lay him down in a baby's trough. You know, he was not, he, he, he wasn't dressed in royal clothing, whatever the baby Kate's baby is dressed in. He was dressed in rags. Uh, he wasn't born wealthy, he was born in poverty. It's nothing like it's supposed to be. That's not how we picture a king coming into power at all. Jesus is a weird king. He's a weird king, but he is the prince of peace. He owns peace. Can I tell you that? Jesus owns peace. In fact, uh, according to Micah, he is peace. He will be our peace. He is our peace. Jesus is peace. The, the only way to obtain shalom is by shalom. The only way to obtain peace is by peace. Je- Jesus is what shalom looks like in a fallen world. Jesus is what shalom looks like in a fallen world. Sacrificing 
Himself for others. Loving the unlovable. Serving the poor. Praying for the sick. Caring for the lost, the marginalized, the vulnerable. That is the picture of shalom. Jesus could have, and He said it Himself, called 10,000 angels. He could have kicked butt and done things a different way than He did. He, he could have done that, but He didn't. He was rich, but He became poor. He didn't rely on the things of this world. He actually laid those things aside. And then in the greatest act of shalom ever, He gave His life for us. That's what He did. See, the way that Jesus brought peace is exactly the way that Isaiah predicted that Jesus would bring peace. He took all the guilt and all the shame and all the sin of all the world upon Himself. He said, I carry it for you. 700 years before it happened, Isaiah in his spirit saw it. He brought peace by being beaten beyond recognition and hanging on a cross for us. And he manifested peace not only in that moment with his whole entire life. And yet sometimes we live in a world that doesn't recognize that. We carry on our lives and we live in a world that is oblivious to the fact that it ever happened. We sing about it at Christmas time, but do we really do it the rest of the time? I, I think what God would have for us as his people is to live our lives in shalom, to live our lives in peace, to manifest the peace of God with who we are and what we do, to show a world really that lives in darkness what light looks like. Right When Jesus said, you know, city on a hill, lamp not understand, that the world lives in darkness. By, by living shalom, we show a world in darkness what light looks like. We, we show a, a world that really lives in hatred what love looks like. We show a world that lives at war what true peace looks like. We show a world that lives in injustice what justice looks like. We show a world that lives in fear what it looks like to not live in fear any longer. Um, we answer, we answer hostile words with blessing. That's how we do it. We respond to aggression with kindness. That's how we do it. We love uh, our friends and neighbors and we love our enemies as well. That's how we do it. See, uh, that's radical. That's radical. Uh, people, you know, I... Live radical lives for Jesus. Well, love your neighbor. Love that knucklehead down the street that gives you all the time. You know, th that's a radical life for Jesus. Decide, decide that you're going to exemplify the peace and shalom of God in all of your exchanges. That's a radical life for Jesus. That's being free. That's true peace. That's what God died for. And that's really what Christmas is about. Look at us. Why don't you guys stand?